There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. This opening line to C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader introduces an entirely obnoxious character. Eustace is a selfish, greedy monster of a boy who makes life difficult for everyone else around him. Because of this, it seems fitting that as the Dawn Treader voyages, Eustace wakes up one day to find that he has become a dragon. As Lewis puts it, Eustace realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race. But this did not begin when Eustace became a dragon. It had already been true of him on the inside and now was revealed on the outside. He had always had a monster-like, dragon-like heart. And we each know that of ourselves, don't we? Inside of each of us, we sense an evil monster lurking, a dragon of pride or lust or greed or anger or selfishness, eager to lie or steal or attack, yell, curse, or murder those who would stand in our way or do what we don't like. Eustace realizes how awful it would be to live out his life as a dragon and longs to be human again. So in steps Aslan the great lion, who represents our Lord Jesus Christ in the world of Narnia. And when Eustace meets Aslan, he knows, Eustace knows, that he needs to undress himself. He needs to remove his scaly dragon skin in order to be human again. But try as he might, Eustace cannot do it himself. He needs Aslan to undress him and make him human, and he needs Aslan to redress him as well. And Aslan does just that, using his huge lion claws to cut through Eustace's dragon skin all the way to his heart and to remove or peel off his dragon nature. The chapter ends this way. It would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Like it or not, you too are a monster, a dragon at heart, and you were born that way, and so was I. And we live in a world filled with monsters, dragons, our fellow sinners. We're one big mob of dragons, and we need to be rescued from that. And for that to happen, you need that evil, your sinful heart, you need that to be removed from you so that you can fellowship with God now and forever. Another way of speaking of that removal is being set apart. If I had a pile of wood that I planned to burn and I chose one piece uh, out of that pile for a different purpose, I would grab it and I would set it apart from my other pile of wood, right, for my other purpose so that I could cut it and sand it and transform it into something better than just a hunk of wood sitting in my wood pile. I would set it apart for that purpose. You need to be set apart. You need to be set apart. Since the first sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this has always been the need of God's people. When we get dirty, we clean what's dirty to remove the dirt. When I change a diaper, I wash my hands. When I get grass on my feet walking through my yard, I rinse off my feet. If I get sweaty working out in the yard, I take a shower. We need to, we need to remove the dirt wherever we find the dirt. I don't wash my feet after I change a diaper with my hands. Unless it's really... <laughs> we need to remove the dirt wherever we find the dirt. And this happens internally as well. What if I had an untreatable infection in my foot? I could leave it alone. I could allow the infection to spread to my entire body. 
Or the doctors could remove my foot to save my life. Easy choice. Where is the source of the poisonous infection of your sin? Where's the source of that? Where does that reside? It is in your heart, as the Bible says. It is part of your very being now. As it's not talking about, right, the organ, the heart transplant that we have, the core of your being as a human, not just physical, but physical and spiritual, the union of those type of things. That's where the sin is. And so that's what needs to be removed from you. Your sinful heart needs to be removed and you need to be set apart from it. What is it called when we separate ourselves like from ourselves? That's called death. This need to be set apart from the sinful world and set apart to fellowship with God, right? That's the direction of it. Set apart from the pile of destruction for a separate special purpose. Set apart from the world, set apart to God. That has always been the need of God's people. In the Old Testament, God called a man in order to set apart that man for himself. That man's name was Abraham. As a physical external sign of God's covenant purpose to set apart Abraham for himself. I will be your God. You will be my people, right? There's that. I've I've called you from the nations. I've set you apart, and that's me to you. That's you to me. As a sign of God's covenant purpose to do that, a physical sign, an external sign, God called Abraham to be circumcised. It's in Genesis chapter 17. This was a cutting off or removal of part of Abraham's flesh to demonstrate that Abraham had been set apart for a special relationship with God. Interestingly, this same sign was used for a similar purpose in Egypt to set apart priests from the common people and and other ancient societies probably as well. So it wasn't invented in Genesis 17. It was given this special purpose and used as a sign for the relationship that God had with Abraham. This sign of setting apart, circumcision meant setting apart, This sign of setting apart was to be practiced by Abraham and his seed across the generations. And 400 years later, we see a renewal of this in the law under the leadership of Moses. Regarding every male Israelite child, Leviticus 12, verse 3 says, And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. This external, visible, physical sign demonstrated that the family or seed of Abraham the people of God, had been set apart by God for God. But what is circumcision really about? Why? Why circumcision? What's the point of it? If what separates us from God is the sin in our hearts, then getting physically circumcised to remove sin is as valuable as clipping your toenails to take care of your lung cancer. It's in a totally different place. Just like circumcision does not get to the heart of the problem because the problem is the heart. In the book of Deuteronomy, we get an answer from God to the question, what's the point of circumcision? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God tells us what circumcision was really about. In this passage, God tells his people, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. But they didn't. And centuries later, God tells his physically circumcised people the same thing through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, he says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And if there's a full stop there, the people of Israel would have been like, did it, done. We are circumcised. This is what he says, though. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
oh, wait a minute. Okay, so I'm physically circumcised, but God's still saying that circumcision is necessary because there's something more. Something that that physical sign was pointing us to more so than the own, that sign. Circumcision pointed to a need for something more. The physical sign of circumcision was always a sign pointing to their need for something more. It was always a shadow pointing to the substance of heart circumcision. From the outset, it wasn't like God took the sign and then redirected it later. He told Abraham, circumcise physically because he knew that he was going to fulfill that in that, that there was a substance, right? Shadow and substance, right? We've talked about this before, wherever the light's coming in, me, even me, potentially. The light's casting a shadow. The shadow's not preaching to you. I'm preaching to you, but the shadow's moving around, and you could see my hands if you were looking in the right place. So there's a shadow that's cast from the substance. Old Testament's filled with that. Circumcision of the heart is the substance casting the shadow backward to physical circumcision of the flesh. It was always about that. But the Israelites regularly and consistently missed this greater need. They focused merely on the physical sign and their physical relationship to Abraham, thinking that that physical relationship, we're his seed after all, thinking that these things guaranteed God's covenant blessing to them. This was not the case, though. That physical relationship did not guarantee them the promise of God. To John the Baptist, they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, but you have no repentance. Therefore, you are not children of Abraham. Matter of fact, God is able from these stones over here in the wilderness to raise up children for Abraham. They made the same claims to Jesus. He opposed them in the same way. In Acts 7, Stephen, we just were introduced to in our scripture reading this morning. Stephen concludes an amazing sermon walking through the Old Testament in front of the high Jewish council of priests and Pharisees and Sadducees. He ends his sermon with these words, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They were physically circumcised, but they were spiritually uncircumcised. They were not circumcised in their hearts. Therefore, they weren't circumcised. They had not been truly and spiritually set apart for God. But they needed to be. And so do you. And so do I. You need to be set apart. I'll put it another way that only makes sense if you've been paying attention. Context in the Bible is important. Context in a sermon is important. If you're just waking up, you need to rewind and listen. You need to be circumcised. We're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 this morning. If you have not already opened up there, please do. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We're continuing Paul's train of thought that we are to walk in Christ. We are to live our lives according to God's work in us. He rooted us, established us, right? Um, we're growing in those type of things, and we're... Um, abounding in thanksgiving. Part of doing that, part of walking in Christ, is avoiding captivity to anything other than Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive by anything else, philosophies that are sourced in empty deceit or human traditions that can be demonically influenced or misused. None of those will fill us. Only captivation to Christ will satisfy us, and we truly have been filled in him. Just as we have been filled in Christ, we have been set apart in Christ. God 
has set you apart for himself. You need to be set apart. This is the truth of this passage. God, God has set you apart for himself. Colossians 2, 11 to 12. In him, who? Christ also. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You need to be circumcised. You know, it seems likely that the false teachers in Colossae had been telling the Christians the same thing, perhaps. You try to reconstruct what exactly is this teaching that Paul's opposing. Why exactly would he bring up circumcision? You know, in Galatia, it's really obvious. He just goes after it. Uh, That's why if you take my sermon comments out of context, you just hit me over the head with Galatians. In context, though, we're good. Don't take me out of context, please. So it seems like these false teachers, among other things, you need philosophy, you need a tradition in order to be filled. Paul says, no, you already are filled in Christ. And it seems like they would also be saying, yes, you need to be physically circumcised in order to advance yourself and advance your spirituality. That puts you in a better place. Perhaps promising them new heights of spiritual glory. I mean, who, who wouldn't want that? Perhaps promising them a deeper experience of the Christian life. We each have that longing right? Don't we? Like, it's like, oh, I'm, don't you want more fellowship with God? Don't you, don't you want to be more holy, more, more godly, to know God more? Eternal life is knowing God. Don't you want a deeper experience with that? Don't we then start to chase just like every whisper of that type of thing? Read this book of the Bible or read this book outside of the Bible or go to this conference or sing these songs. It's like that's the deeper experience of the Christian life. And we, we want to chase after that because we, we want to know God more. That's the spirit inside of us that creates that longing. And then our flesh looks to philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions, demonically influenced, to try to reach that longing in some special way. And they said that what you need is circumcision. That'll get you there. If that's what the false teachers were saying, other Christians, other uh, false teachers were saying that in other places in the first century. But if they said that you need to be circumcised, they were half right and all wrong. You do need circumcision. All of you all of and me, all of humanity. We need circumcision. So they were right. You do need to be set apart for God. You're not born set apart from God. You need it. But the false teachers were all wrong because they missed that in Christ, we have been circumcised. You need to be circumcised, but in Christ, it's already happened. In Christ, God has set you apart for himself. God did this. You need to be set apart, point one. Point two, God did this in Christ. Back all the way in Deuteronomy again, right? God introduces the fact, physical circumcision, pointed to spiritual circumcision, a need that they had, a need that he admits to them they do not have the capacity to fulfill for themselves. You can't circumcise your heart. But he makes this promise for them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He reiterates this and expounds on it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that they broke, for this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law within them. I, I, who? Who's I? God, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God And they shall be my people, and they shall all know me, 
From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do we see that who's the subject of this work? God is the subject of this work. God has done what is needed in Christ. Please listen to me very carefully. What you need God has done for you in Christ. God has now fulfilled the need for his people to be circumcised, to be set apart. God has fulfilled that for his people in Christ. What was pointed to in physical circumcision and promised regarding heart circumcision, which is a straight line in the text, what was pointed to What was promised has now been fulfilled. Done. Check. God has circumcised you. That is the undeniable New Testament witness. And we have it spelled out here as clearly as can be. Look again at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised. You were passive again. It was done to you. It was done for you. It was not done by you. Your need to be set apart for God, your circumcision, it has already taken place. You didn't do it. Your parents didn't do it. And no pastor of yours ever did it. God did it. How do I know that it was God? Well, the text In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's a very important phrase. Made without hands. First of all, the circumcision made without hands reminds us that this fulfillment, this this circumcision is the spiritual work of God. And the fulfillment of his promise to circumcise our hearts. You need circumcision of your heart, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 30, I will circumcise your heart. Jeremiah 30, I will write it on your heart. Same promise. Now, what does he say in Colossians? I did it. It's been done. God did that. So made without hands, right? Now, it doesn't mean that somebody used their feet. It doesn't mean that some automatic tool, terrifying-looking tool, was invented for circumcision physically. No, it's, it's not done humanly. The spiritual work of God. Secondly, this phrase in Scripture, made with hands, I don't know if that jumps out to you as anything, but if you read through different parts of Scripture, made with hands is not a compliment. It's not a good thing. Made with hands points to idolatry. Always, you have this statue made with hands. Our hands, our human tools could defile things, right? But what God has done remains undefiled because it's God. It's not going too far to say that for a new covenant believer, which is us, the fulfillment of that promise of Jeremiah 31, For a new covenant believer, pursuing God through a circumcision made with hands is not only unnecessary, but it actually, pursuing God through a physical circumcision is idolatrous and therefore demonically influenced. Anything that's not of the Lord, right, would be coming from Satan. Those elementary spirits, perhaps. If it doesn't say Christ is Lord and sufficient, Only the Spirit can cause us to say that. But those who reject that, that's demonic. You need to be set apart, and God has done what is necessary in Christ. And so in Christ, point three, in Christ you have all that you need. You needed to be set apart. You needed to be circumcised. God did this in Christ, finished the work, fulfilled the promise. So in Christ, you have all that you need. You have fullness, verse 10. 
satisfaction, completeness, what we're always chasing after. Maybe this purchase, maybe this person, maybe this job, maybe this activity, maybe this religious high. Maybe that's what I was looking for. Know what you were looking for was Christ, and you have him, right? That's where fulfillment, fullness, completeness, satisfaction is. You have fullness in Christ, verse 10, and you have circumcision in Christ, verse 11. How? How do we have circumcision with Christ? We have it through union with Christ. Union with Christ in his death, union with him in his burial, and in his resurrection. And that idea of union with Christ is what Paul is talking about when he says, in Christ. Boy, does he say, in Christ, a lot. <laughs> in Christ, with Christ, of Christ. Paul just beats that drum because union with Christ is the absolute center of the gospel. The best picture of union that I think we have is marriage. When Leanne and I were married, we entered into union with each other. What had been mine suddenly became ours. Any debt I had became our debt. Sorry, honey. Any money I had, <laughs> I didn't have any money. Any money I had became our money. So it is with our union in Christ. We had a debt of sin, and he had a wealth of righteousness. And our debt became his, and his wealth became ours. Union with Christ. He took that debt on himself. He gave us his wealth of righteousness. This union and, and the benefits that flow from it and, and where we're united with him very specifically spelled out in the New Testament. There's a sister passage to this that deserves its own series, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. But in a sister passage to this, Romans chapter 6, read Romans chapter 6 this afternoon. Paul writes there in Romans 6 that believers have died to sin. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Did you catch that, Christian? Christ's crucifixion is your crucifixion. His death is your death. This is exactly what Paul is pointing to here in Colossians. The circumcision made without hands took place by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We could hash out a number of different details about this particular phrase. Many do, and it's interesting to look at that and consider it. Uh, but two options, mainly this phrase, uh, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, it could be talking about specifically what happened to us, the body of our sinful flesh, which is use, uses Paul's terminology in another book, specifically in Romans. The body of our sinful flesh was put off by God in spiritual circumcision as we are united to Christ's death. So by putting off the body of the flesh could be the body of your flesh. And it's like, oh yeah, I, I, that sounds familiar, right? That sounds like aspects of Romans, uh, maybe. Or it could be talking about Christ's death. It doesn't jump right out as a potential as we just look at this passage, but it's interesting. Body of flesh is the same sort of phrase Paul used earlier to talk about Christ's death on the cross. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh. So flesh sometimes is used by Paul to be negative, and sometimes it's just flesh, skin. If that's the case, if this circum by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, if that's talking about Christ's death, then Paul is using crucifixion as a gruesome metaphor that fulfills circumcision. He didn't just have a bit of his flesh taken off. The entirety of his body of flesh removed, cut off on the cross. 
Either way, I really think that the point is the same. We are united with Christ in his death, his death, a gruesome fulfillment of what circumcision was pointing to. It's not just a little bit that needs to be cut off. It's all of it that needs to be cut off. And then in Christ, in our union with him, in his death, at his crucifixion, which becomes my crucifixion, my body of sinful flesh was cut off. Spiritual fulfillment happens in the body of Christ and my guilt on his body, my heart transferred to him so that it could be cut off in him. Really, So both doors, I think, get us to the same path. The demand for and promise of a circumcised heart have now become a reality in the cross. That's when it happened. That's when the cutting off, the removal, the setting apart of God's people through God's son, that's when it happened. But Paul doesn't stop there. Our union with Christ is not limited to his death on the cross. We're not just united with him in a death like his. We are united with him in his burial in the tomb, having been buried with him in baptism, verse 12 says. And we remain united with him when he rises from the dead, in which, likely baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. In Christ you died. In Christ you were buried. In Christ you were raised to a new life. We are so united with Christ in all that he has done for us that we are surrounded by him. We are covered by him. We are so intricately and perfectly identified with Christ that you could say we are immersed in him. Last week, our family went up to Holly River State Park. I don't know if you've been. It's out there, but it's pretty. And we went walking in the river. This is shallow mostly and fairly cold. Rivers don't warm up. We walked around and we even swam in it. I had on swim trunks and a, a running shirt, just for everybody else's sake, as I slowly went deeper and deeper into the water. Somehow, even with the clothes that I was wearing, the coldness and the wetness of the water went everywhere. The shorts, the shirt, the shoes, the water shoes, they didn't protect me. Why is that? I had on clothes. How could the water get to me? Well, when you immerse yourself in water, you are united to that water. And it gets everywhere, surrounding you. No part of you is left dry or warm in this instance until you go numb. What a great picture that is of our union with Christ. We are immersed in him. You know what another word for immersion is? Baptism. Baptized. It's just a, don't translate it, just bring the word right over. You are immersed in him, overwhelmingly connected to him, surrounded by him. We are buried with Christ in baptism, in this union, and in baptism we are also raised with Christ to a new life. It's actually why we say, buried with him, likeness of his death, raised to walk, in newness of life. You need to be set apart, which involves the ending of your old life and the beginning of a new life, and all of this is yours, for it has been accomplished for you. And in you, accomplished for you, accomplished in you by God in your new birth, your regeneration, the circumcision of your heart. Don't miss that line of thought here. You with me still? All of those who have received Christ the Lord are called to walk in him. They are to be held captive by Christ alone, for they have been filled in Christ alone, and they have been circumcised in Christ alone. All those whom God has circumcised in Christ have been united to Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection to a new life. There's no introduction of any other audience in this flow of thought. It's all to the same people. 
Presbyterians and other Pado baptists claim that Old Testament circumcision is fulfilled by New Testament baptism. And some claim that is taught by this passage, and that is incorrect. It is not what this passage is talking about. Just because two words that we want to connect fall into a group of verses does not mean that it says everything that we want it to say. It misses the point of this passage. It doesn't just solve the debate. It's not like I just finally figured it out. Oh, great. We'll just drop, I have lunch with Barrett and uh, Kurt, pastors at Redeemer Presbyterian this week on Tuesday. Finally, I get to show them this passage. The church will dissolve, reconstitute as Baptist. Whew, got it, took care of it. It's not what I'm saying. But this passage is not talking about this. The fulfillment of the Old Testament sign of circumcision comes about in our regeneration to a new life in Christ. When God himself gives you a new heart of flesh, when you're united with Christ, that's what this passage is talking about. Circumcision is not fulfilled in baptism Circumcision is fulfilled at conversion in our regeneration. It is fulfilled in our union with Christ in his death. And no one is united to Christ in his death that is not united to Christ in his burial, that is not united to Christ in his resurrection to a new life. If you are circumcised in Christ, you are alive spiritually. Not you might be. You are. You have been circumcised in Christ. It is fulfilled in our union with Christ in his death. And how do we know this and this straight line of the walking in him and being filled in him and being united with him in death, burial, and resurrection? Because circumcision is received by faith. You individually receive this by faith. You are also raised with him in the pow- through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Like everything else that God required of his people in the law, physical circumcision was always supposed to be connected to faith. It's not like that was a faithless act. It was a faith-filled act pointing forward to what God said was the need, which wasn't physical circumcision, it was heart circumcision. And then immediately following in the course of the law, you have to be circumcised because I'm going to have to circumcise you. Receive this physical sign because I'm going to circumcise your hearts. So be circumcised because something's coming. Sacrifice goats and sheep and bulls because something is coming. Come and worship at the temple because a temple is coming. Look to the snake wrapped on the tree because Jesus is going to be lifted up. If only the New Testament were to talk about this. This is what Hebrews is about. It's all pointing to Christ, fulfilled in Christ, and then it passes away. It was always connected to faith. For Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, it was about faith looking forward and receiving God's promise as true and trusting that he would solve the problem of their sin and guilt and their uncircumcised hearts, that he would take care of it so they acted in faith. And now, our spiritual circumcision is about faith looking backward, backward to the righteous life of Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. We look back in our circumcision because we're united with him in his death. It's been fulfilled. That's looking backward. And the glorious truth and promise of this passage is that for all those with faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, God has set you apart for himself in Christ. That promise is yours in the gospel. You're not in that wood pile anymore. You've been taken out rescued by the sovereign grace of God for a better purpose, not that you would fulfill a good purpose in yourself, but that God is going to fulfill a purpose in you. 
In Christ you have been filled. In Christ you have been circumcised. In Christ you died. The punishment for your sin taken care of in his crucifixion, not yours. His burial, not yours. And his resurrection, not something that you have to then have. The blessing is yours in Christ. But if you do not have faith, you remain uncircumcised. You are spiritually dead in your sins. That old heart, that dragon heart and dragon nature remains all that is yours. And the punishment that follows that you deserve in your sinfulness. So if you remain uncircumcised and separate from Christ... You are headed toward a physical death, a cutting off of your nature and an eternal punishment for your sins in hell. That's the destiny. You're not in Christ. You're in sin. Period. If you have not believed, you are disconnected from Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. You have no hope of forgiveness if you are disconnected from Christ. You are without God in the world and then in the world to come. And if this is true of you, I have no faith. I am disconnected from Christ. What should you do? Come to Christ by faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. What Scripture says of Christ is true and what it offers to you is true. Death in place of your own. Life for you and forgiveness, union with Christ now and forever. Come to Christ by faith to receive all that God has offered to you, knowing that all that God offers is all that you need. Flip that. All that you need is what God offers to you in Christ. There's one final question that rises to the surface from this passage for us. Many Christians in the first century did struggle with whether or not physical circumcision was of spiritual benefit to them. Is this physical act that's been part of uh, God's relationship with his people, uh, bringing them into his presence, as it were, bringing them closer, does it still do that? Does physical circumcision bring us closer to God? Did it make them extra special Christians? That's what they were asking. And we still pursue the same questions, right? How can I draw closer to God? How can I be an extra special Christian? But we answer it differently. So what takes the place of circumcision for you? Because I really don't think any of you are like, should I be physically circumcised in order to be a better Christian? Like we, we would, probably we would all laugh at that. And we'd laugh at that because we've read Galatians, I hope. And Paul's like, circumcision? That's no value to you. Like, he spells that out clearly. It's like, oh, okay, good. Problem solved. Well, apparently problem's not solved. So what does, what, like, fill in the blank of circumcision and what is it for you? Let me ask it differently. What external markers, like circumcision, define Christianity for you? As one author put it, in some circles, certain acts are considered to be identity markers that aim at identifying a group as those true to the gospel message. He says, in the previous generation, The avoidance of drinking, smoking, dancing, and movie attendance were considered to be such markers. While avoiding such acts, he says, is often consistent with aspects of New Testament teaching, it is tempting to highlight them at the expense of the renewal of the heart. Many Christians can, maybe Christians can drink and smoke and dance and go to the movie theater. I I can't dance, but it's not moral. Maybe Christians can drink, smoke, dance, and go to the movie theater, or maybe we shouldn't. But either way, those things are not the definition of what a Christian is. Movie theater goer, movie theater not goer. It's not the definition of a Christian. Smoker, non-smoker, not the definition of a Christian, right? Plays with face cards or only uses rook cards. That's what we did in our youth group. Never really made sense. Like, same game, same cards. Did you guys do the same thing, right? But uh, never, you don't have to answer that. Don't, don't go on record for that. But we played the same. We called it Rook. Leanne called it Euchre because they could use face cards in their youth group. We had to use Rook cards in our youth group. I don't, it's a carryover. Made no, made no difference. Made no sense. Whatever. Perhaps it's those things. Maybe they are still a hang-up for you. 
Maybe it's certain dress standards. We talked about that in conscience, right? Godly Christian woman, ungodly Christian woman. Really? Long sleeve, short sleeve, tie, jacket, shiny shoes, not shiny shoes. Oh, silly people. They make, make big deals out of nothing, but we don't, except for the things that matter to me. So maybe it's dress standards. Maybe it's music style preferences that serve as those markers for you. Interestingly, some say a Christian must do, must not do those things, and others go far, so far as to live as if a Christian must do those things. Like, oh, if, if you think Christianity is assigned by a modesty standard, right, of here, well, it's not, so I have to wear skirts that aren't that, right? You say Christianity is not smoking, well, then every Christian should smoke. Really? So we can just pendulum swing, and to do that, to take the not doing or the doing and exalt either of them as the definition of what Christianity is, misses the whole point. Matter of fact, it would be like saying, like, well, circumcision doesn't benefit you spiritually, but uncircumcision does benefit you spiritually. To which Paul would be like, no, it doesn't. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision benefits anything. It's all Christ. Both sides miss the point. Our closeness to God is found exclusively in Christ, not in our behavior. So what in your mind sets you apart from other lesser Christians by your doing or not doing them? I read for 30 minutes every morning. Oh, you read for less than 30 minutes? Oh, I used to do that. Oh, you, you wear T-shirts to church? Oh, no, I, used, I used to do that, but now, college shirt. Because I love Jesus. I mean, I'm sure you do too. One day you will more, like me. What in your mind sets you apart from other lesser Christians by your doing or not doing of them? And whatever those things may be, whether drawn from biblical texts or traditions, whatever you are doing, thinking that it makes you extra special in God's eyes, you need to set them aside. You need to scrap them. Because that's what Paul did. Whatever benefits of external righteousness he had achieved over his lifetime, he said he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All you need in your relationship with God is Christ. All you need in your relationship with God is Christ. Whatever spiritual benefit you think that doing or not doing those other external things will provide you, pushing you ahead a little bit more, those benefits are already yours in Christ. Circumcision doesn't help. Uncircumcision doesn't help because you could scrap it because you have Christ. Like the hands and your whole soul are full. And if you're full, how much more can you take on? How much more do you need to take on? If you're full, you need what? Nothing. And if you need something, then you're not full. You see? All these, these philosophies, these traditions, to Jesus and that. You're already full in him. Oh, circumcision, that'll be, no, you already are circumcised in him. You have the benefits in Christ that you are looking for. So don't look somewhere else for them. You are filled in him. You are set apart in him. And I can hear some of you asking, but what about obedience? What about the fruit of faith, which is good works? That's a great question. And it's important to emphasize, in its proper place. In its proper place, obedience and good works, as the fruit which follows faith. And as we move forward in Colossians, we will see how our fullness in Christ reveals itself in a transformation of every part of our lives. No relationship is untouched. It enters into our homes, not just in, our mar not in the marketplace, into our very families, into marriages and parenting. 
Our fullness and transformation in Christ enters into all of those type of things. But if we don't grasp our fullness in Christ, if you don't get that you are not gaining benefit with God through that, if you miss the fullness that you have and the separation, set-apart, circumcision that you have in Christ, if you don't grasp that, then every change just becomes another physical circumcision. Another attempt, attempt on our part to scratch off our own wicked dragon skin on our own while avoiding the problem of our sinful hearts. And it didn't work for Eustace, and it won't work for us. We need Christ, and we have Christ. There's another sign that God has given us to point us to Christ and his death burial and resurrection on our behalf that we receive by faith and that's at the lord's table which are going to be brought forward you're wondering why the table without the elements on the table i want that to become like a we pray and then it just appears as if some miracle happened it didn't they're just back there and brett's going to bring them forward so it doesn't be awkward brother because i just told everybody what was happening but this here the bread and the cup a sign that god has given us to point us to christ Point us backward to our union with him. He died. He, buried, he was buried. He rose. All of that is contained in the sign that we have here at the Lord's table. Received by faith. Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, lived a life of perfect righteousness before God? That he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins? That he was buried and then on the third day he rose again? He ascended into heaven, and he is returning for us. If you do, that is faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. By that faith, his new life is your new life. And so we come to celebrate, yes, we have partaken of Christ by faith. If you're a follower of Christ then, faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, then you come, receive Return to our seats, we'll take it together as one body. Because it's not just you that's full in Christ, it's us. We are full in Christ. We are united with believers around the world from Indonesia to what Hawaii would be before the dateline, whatever it crosses when Monday starts again. All these believers gathering, we are one with them. Christ died for his people across time and across the world, and we celebrate that with them. Let's give thanks. God, our Father, thank you for Christ, all that he has done for us, intentionally and purposefully, the eternal purpose of God to save us from our sins. Glorify yourself at this table. Thank you for Jesus' death, his sacrifice, his new life, and his return. Amen.